This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us... You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. So this morning, I'll be exploring the question of faith schools. Is our long tradition of blurred lines between religion and education a positive part of our multicultural heritage? Or are faith schools hotbeds of indoctrination and prejudice? So it's Saturday, we are live despite the technical hitches and I'm feeling kind of still. So hopefully I will shortly be welcoming Andrew Copson, who has also had technical issues. So it's been quite a morning, uh, but we're crossing our fingers that everything is going to work. He's ready in the studio and I'll be inviting him on in a few moments time. So Andrew is a chief executive of Humanists UK and president of Humanists International. And he's going to be joining me on the show to talk about faith schools and why he believes they shouldn't exist. But to start with, I thought it might be interesting to share my own experience of attending a faith school. So despite hailing from a family of heathens, 
my parents sent me to a private Church of England school for all sorts of reasons. Some of them I'm not entirely sure about. Um, but its impact on me was balanced out by my experiences at home. Not because my parents sold me an atheist line, but perhaps rather bizarrely, because they didn't. So this is something that I wrote in 2014 for Humanist Life magazine. It's pretty damning of my experience at the faith school I went to, and I can only hope that the school has moved on a little since the 1980s. I'm sure it has. The post is called Losing My Religion, How My Faith School Nurtured an Atheist. My school was proudly old fashioned. Questions were viewed with suspicion and contempt, especially in the context of religion. We were not allowed to study RE as a subject since exposure to a variety of religious views would have apparently confused us. Instead, we had divinity with the school chaplain. We read passages from the Bible and he explained them. My parents were deliberately neutral in their stance. And so I came to my religious schooling with a completely open mind, in many ways, an easy convert. I was profoundly respectful of what I assumed were the sincerely held beliefs of those around me. And I would bow my head during prayers. I was utterly fascinated by the ritual of chapel, knew all the traditional hymns, I can still sing most of them all the way through, much to my husband's consternation, can recite the creed, some of the Psalms, the Lord's Prayer and several others. While I would listen with interest during the sermon, it took me a long time to realise that I was pretty much the only one doing so. On an increasing number of occasions, I would find myself enraged by the message we had been given in chapel or puzzled by the hypocrisy of our situation. If Jesus said to sell all thou hast and give to the poor, what were we doing in an expensive boarding school? Did God honestly care about how I performed in my exams? Didn't he have something more important to worry about? And why on earth did I have to pray for the queen? Ignored by the staff and ridiculed by my peers, it became clear to me that most people neither listened to nor cared about the lessons that we were taught by the reverend. Even he didn't seem to care that much. Yet when I questioned the charade, I was bullied for it by students and by some of the staff. Despite the pressure, or perhaps because of it, I was a rebellious child at heart. I became more and more convinced during my childhood that an unswerving acceptance of a bundle of ancient writings made very little sense. In addition, a school rife with bullying was a fine place to observe that religious beliefs have no effect on a person's humanity. Over the years, I watched some of the worst bullies in the school pass through their confirmation ceremony in which they agreed to turn away from everything which was evil or sinful. Some of them became servers in chapel. My distaste for the whole sham increased, and by the time I reached university, I was relieved to be away from it. Yet given that we're all a product of our experiences, I sometimes wonder what kind of person I would be had I not attended such an old-fashioned faith school. 
I fully support the humanist campaign against them as in principle, I believe that every child should have an education that is free in every sense, not least free from indoctrination and prejudice. Yet for me, my experiences shaped my convictions and not in the way that the school had intended. Maybe I'm unusual, but if my story is anything to go by and you want to nurture an atheist, I guess you proceed as follows. Send them to a faith school, ladle on plenty of hypocrisy and tell them not to ask any questions. The result may surprise you. So as I say, I wrote that in 2014 and at the time was a member of Humanists UK or the British Humanist Association as they were known then. And I certainly at the time agreed with their campaign against faith schools. However, I seem to be turning into one of those really annoying people that can now see all sides of every argument. And now I'm not so sure. So I'm really keen to talk to Andrew and maybe he can persuade me back to how I used to feel. Uh, and maybe I can restart my, my view that uh, they shouldn't exist. So I'm going to welcome Andrew to the show now. And I'm very much hoping that our sound is going to be okay and I can hear him. Hello, Andrew. Hello, can you hear me okay? Oh, it's perfect. No. Oh, good. <laughs> Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you very much. And huge apologies about all the technical issues. I've got no music, so it's just us. <laughs> you have a very musical voice. <laughs> Thank you. Well, first of all, for the uninitiated, it's probably best that we start with what what a humanist is why why you'd call yourself a humanist and not an atheist of course well the word humanist has been used in english since um the the 19th century to describe someone who has a particular non-religious view uh, of life non-religious approach to life one which uh, places the source of value and meaning um, and grounds our ethics in human life and human welfare without any reference to concepts or uh, entities outside of human beings and an approach to life that says that through our human senses, that's the way we'll make sense of the universe in which we find ourselves, that it's a natural phenomenon susceptible to rationality and to scientific investigation and without any need for supernatural or supernatural explanations uh, for the things that happen both in the universe and to us. That's a very potted definition, but that's what it's about, really. OK, so do you think it's important to... I know when, when my husband joined the organisation, he said he wanted to define himself by what he does believe, whereas saying you're an atheist is, is simply just a statement of non-belief. Do you, do you agree with that? Yes, I think that's, that's a common reason for people to take on the identity um, uh, to say, oh, I'm a humanist. I mean, the, the number of people in Britain who, who say that are, are comparatively few. YouGov tells us that it's about 7%, 7 of the population who say, um, you know, yes, I'm, I'm non-religious and I'm a humanist. The percentage of people with humanist beliefs and values, you know, the humanist approach to life that I've just outlined, of course, is much greater. And YouGov tells us that's almost a third of the, of the population. So I think it does take a very specific set of choices and experiences for a person to say, OK, I'm actually going to call myself a humanist. I'm going to say I'm, I'm a humanist. And one of those is very much um, commonly, I hear, uh, the sort of thing that you quote your husband as saying is that I wanted to find a way. You know, first of all, when I heard what a humanist was, I realised I was one. Um, mm -hmm. That was my beliefs and values. And that's a sort of eureka moment that a lot of people talk about. It's not a sort of conversion story. It's more of a realisation story when people start calling themselves humanists. But the second thing they say often is, yes, I wanted, I wanted, I was glad to find a positive word. 
Um, I didn't want to be constantly defining myself by what I wasn't, what I didn't believe in. You know, atheist and atheism, these are religious words. Um, mm. They're words that uh, describe what we are, uh, what one believes, um, in opposition to, in contrast to um, believing in God, as if, you know, believing in God is the norm or that's the So, so it's, I think one of the problems with atheism and atheists um, is that it's a very minimal statement about yourself. It says something very singular. You know, I don't believe in God. Well, you know, who cares? Uh, to, to some extent, you might say. Um, and it's a very negative word, but it's also one that, through its use, normalises uh, religious standards. So, yes, I would always prefer to say about myself um, on, on occasions when I've got to define myself in some way, which is actually quite rare, of course, in normal life. Um, <laughs> I, would, I, I would like to always say, yes, I've got a humanist approach, and that's a positive word, and that is a common reason for using the word. Hmm, that's really interesting. So how, for example, would uh, an organisation like Humanist UK and, and Humanist International, how would you say you are different in what you stand for from something like the Secular Society? Well, there are many, I mean, there are organisations um, in Britain uh, and have been for about 130 years, the ones that still exist, um, that have marched at many times under the same banner and been part of the same movement. And historically, um, that's been certainly true in the UK of organisations like the British Humanist Association, now Humanist UK, which started in the late 1890s, the National Secular Society, which is still called that, which started in the um, uh, 1860s. Um, and organizations like the Rationist Association, which published a magazine called New Humanist, which started in the 1880s. And those members of those different organizations and the priorities of those different organizations have often uh, coalesced and been shared. So, for example, things that everyone in all those different organizations over the last 130, 140 years would have agreed with would be secularizing goals. So, like, for example, uh, separating church and state, um, making sure that everyone has freedom of belief and freedom of expression. Uh, making sure that no one is discriminated against or treated unequally by the state or in general on grounds of their convictions, um, religious or philosophical. And those sorts of um, political aims, I suppose, um, are ones that have, have united uh, everyone under those banners. And today, um, an organisation like the National Secular Society pursues those uh, political goals uh, exclusively. Um, Humanist UK has those political goals, but it also is a is a platform for a broader type of, of change, not just political, but and, and not just political and legal, but, but social and cultural change as well. And since um, our foundation in the 1890s, the, the things we campaigned for have been broader social goals by and large. So for universal healthcare, for example, for universal education, for international cooperation, for um, the codification and, and, and legal recognition of human rights. And today too, humanists have goals that aren't just about uh, the separation of religion from politics or uh, freedom of belief for everyone, but about freedom of expression, freedom of choice uh, for people to live in the one life that we have, um, a the most fulfilling, happiest existence that they can in line with the rights and freedoms of others. So I think there's a broader social uh, and cultural um, attitude within humanist organisations globally. And I think also that humanist organisations are more uh, likely globally this is true but it's true in the UK as well to see themselves as having a, a role in the lives of people who have a humanist approach uh, to things so for example um, we provide celebrants to do things like funerals weddings humanist weddings are the most popular type of legal marriage now in Scotland um, after the civil registrar 
uh, in Northern Ireland, they're growing very fast. Humanist funerals in some crematoria in the country, you know, are the majority of, of funerals. So humanist uh, organisations typically provide those sorts of services as well, um, which secularist organisations typically don't because they're concerned with the um, political manifesto. Mm. Well, my, my mother was a, a funeral celebrant for many years. Um, Excellent. So yeah, that was my first exposure to the organisation. And certainly, I would say it's, it's really the sort of front facing of your organisation. I think that's the first place that a lot of people hear about you, isn't it? When they go to a funeral and they're stunned to discover that there are alternatives to rolling out the vicar. Yes, yes. I mean, it's uh, that's exactly right. And and the number of you know we survey our new members every year, and a large proportion of them, and um, when we ask them how they first heard of us, heard of us through a funeral, um, which might not, on the face of it isn't immediately <laughs> uh, the most attractive of uh, of first experiences. Um, but of course, it is because, as you say, that that what that experience consists of um, is participating in, and I think people who are in, who are present at humanist ceremonies really are participants active mm. participants participating in the celebration of a life um or the the very if it's not a celebration if, it, if it's more of a because there, there are sometimes very tragic deaths of course um then at least a ceremony that is authentic that is meaningful that is tailored perfectly to the the values and experiences of the, of the people involved um and that resonates really i think with people's actual experiences in a way that many people find more standard religious scripts um, uh, don't. Of course, some people a- a- enjoy um, uh, religious rituals and that are, they, 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 they fit into a, uh, a familiar groove for them or they're uh, sanctified by time and they feel comfortable with them um, or uh, they believe in them. I mean, that's rarer, but that, that's also something that, that happens. Um, but many people, of course, the majority of people now we you know in, in, in Britain uh, don't have religious beliefs. And so they are, their minds are opened and their hearts are open too when they experience humanist ceremonies, I think, which are so different. Um, they're not as uh, di- completely different as they were, of course. We're now, we're now proud to have many emulators. I mean, there are many uh, celebrants now out there doing um, non-religious funerals uh, that, that humanists pioneered, but now there are many other people doing them too. And I think that's part of a, a wider secularising trend in society, which will probably carry on at least through our lifetimes. Hmm. There's, there's. I've been to all sorts. Um, my mother calls them the pick and mix variety. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's a she's a true <laughs> humanist celebrant then. She, she is. She very much is. And yeah, there's the ones that. Oh, if you want a prayer, we can chuck that in as well. Um, yes, I have. I've been to to a baby naming done by a multi faith minister. That was a first. Ah, oh, yeah. Um, well, these things. I mean, these are um, unusual and eclectic. Uh, people are certainly around as well, and I think you know, I think our attitude to that would be always, wouldn't it? Well, uh, let 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 people have what they want, of course, let them have freedom of choice. But I do think that you know, trained and accredited and part of a community of practice, humanist celebrants, you know, celebrants uh, accredited by humanist organisations, really have something um, special. They uh, they're, they're grounded in, 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 in a worldview and an approach to life, which um, has these occasions are precious. Um, they're committed uh, to the provision of um, meaningful ceremonies and they walk with, you know, the, the couple, if it's a wedding or the, or the grieving friends and family, if it's, if it's a funeral, in a completely authentic way. 
um, you know, you know, if a humanist celebrant is saying something that they're speaking from their own heart as well as um, resonating with the, the hearts and minds of, of, of the families that they're working with. And I think that's important. Some people may want different, you know, religious and non-religious elements blended in and it doesn't matter to them what the celebrant or the person leading the ceremony believes. Um, I know that personally I, I've, I've, I've always uh, enjoyed and found an extra uh, dimension of meaning in these ceremonies um, from working with um, authentically humanist celebrants. Mm. So you mentioned choice there, which is a perfect inroad into our discussion about faith schools, because, of course, one of the things that people argue is about parental choice. Mm. So why would Humanists UK be so against the existence of faith schools if you do support the liberal view that, that every, everyone should have choice? Well, that's a very interesting way of getting into the question, I must say. Um, it's, I mean, there are many, many dimensions to, to, to debate about state-funded, specifically state-funded religious schools, faith schools. Um, choice is a rather um, modern way into it. Um, and it largely arises, of course, in the last 20 odd years when this, this idea of choice came into the, the school sector. Of course, most parents have little to no choice uh, in, 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 in where they uh, send their children. I suppose if you want to make choice the focus of the discussion, um, we could start talking about whose choice it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I'm, uh, I think that parents have, of course, a majority say uh, in, in, in the life of their child and how that child will be brought up. But I don't think the choice uh, of parents is the only choice that matters. I think children themselves are human beings um, who, although they can't always make choices, should have the should be educated for choice, you know, should be experiencing an education that opens them up to the different ideas that are in the world, the different beliefs that are in the world, um, not only so they can understand what other people believe, but um, so they can formulate their own developing uh, standards and values and beliefs. And I think that um, the choices and the potential future choices of children therefore have to be balanced against the choices of parents. But I also think that wider society has the stake, has a stake in um, decisions and um, uh, discussions certainly about how uh, children should be brought up and educated. So I think that there are, for example, that we, we might say, well, as we do, um, we want a certain national curriculum to, to be followed. We want children to be prepared um, to be well-informed and participating citizens. We want them to be open-minded um, future members of a society that is plural and is um, diverse and therefore want them to be equipped with uh, tolerance, understanding, sympathy, knowledge um, about different uh, ways of believing, different ways of being. So I think although parental choice in the upbringing of their child is important, I think there are other factors that we can weigh against um, parental choice uh, in various ways. I also think that um, we need to cl- more clearly def- sort of delineate um, what school is about. I mean, if, if for example, you were to say school is so that, schools are so that parents can choose what their children learn when they're outside the home. I think that would be quite a, a controversial statement. I mean, you said in your own introduction, for example, how um, you were l- lucky to be exposed to both a home environment and a school environment, which are different from each other. Um, mm. And I think that that's a very valuable uh, contribution to a large number of children's upbringing. I mean, you hear again and again and again, especially from uh, very thoughtful adults who've had um, 
lives where they've been able to make their own uh, choices in many different ways, how liberating the school environment was for them uh, as compared with the home environment. I think that that's an important factor. I think that, you know, even if we did believe, as I do, that parents should have, as it were, the majority share of choice over uh, their child's upbringing, um, I think that there might be arguments for saying that the school should not be one of those things that the parents can choose. Parents can choose how um, they raise their children at home. They can choose where they send their children um, when they're not at uh, school. They can choose supplementary schools, the religious schools, for example. They can choose activities. And hopefully they'd consult their children in this, <laughs> in these decisions, <laughs> in line with their growing maturity, at least. Um, but they can choose all sorts of things. Um, should school be, uh, again like all those things, something they should choose? Or might there be an argument for saying, actually, it's one of the things where parental choice should perhaps legitimately be reduced a little bit because we, we as a society value exposing children to a diverse range of ideas and don't want to simply reinforce the parental views that a children will, child will be raised in at home in the institutions of the state, i.e. the state schools. I think, there's, I think choice is a, is a complicated concept. Well, it almost sounds like if you take take your argument to the extreme that we should have faith schools, but only atheist parents should be allowed to send their children. <laughs> well, indeed, that has been put forward by I think no. Harry, Brick, Harry Brickhouse, the educational philosopher. I think that's his name. Um, wrote in his book on education, the, his Routledge, famous book on education and philosophy of education. He's a it's a standard book on philosophy of education. He's a um, uh, I suppose a leading. Uh, philosopher of education, <clears throat> he suggested precisely that. He said that um, there should be religious schools um, or, as it were, atheist schools, humanist schools, uh, and the children that should go to them should be the children of parents who have the opposite view. <laughs> um, I mean, that that is taking it to an extreme, but I don't disagree with the basic premise, I don't think, which is that in schools, children um, should be exposed to mind-opening ideas. I mean... Mm. I, that's what education is, I think, definitionally, to me anyway, and it's certainly a, a work, good working liberal humanist definition of education. It's the exploration of new concepts, the encountering of new ideas, the, the opening up of your mind, the broadening of your horizons beyond what the home environment can give you. Mm. I mean, I'm certainly, I'm really happy that I had the experience at school that I did, because and, and my parents, they, they made a very, what most people would consider a very odd decision in that they point blank refused to tell me their beliefs. Now, of course, as, a, as an adult, I know that the only people likely to do that are atheists or agnostics, really. Mm. Um, but as a child, of course, I, did, I, I didn't know that. And, and I was... I was desperate to know what they thought. You were in the dark, they, completely Yeah, in the dark. I was completely in the dark. And I just remember going through all sorts of sort of existential thought experiments because of the ideas I was being exposed to in chapel and ultimately coming to the conclusion that I, that I didn't buy any of it. But I really did have the freedom to, to explore. And, and I remember thinking, oh, it must be really wonderful to believe this and really sort of having that conversation with myself maybe I should try and believe this and um, it, it really is an experience that I'm actually quite grateful for that I was exposed to obviously it was only one religion I mean it, ideally yeah. I should have been exposed to to all of them I suppose well I think that's one of the other problems of course with with religious schools um, is that we've been speaking uh, as if um, the 
well, we've been speaking about the value of, of different experiences and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that you could, you could, you could point out that a religious school is likely um, and often does in practice um, give um, extreme weight to its own religion. Um, oh, yeah, and, 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 and to and to the yeah exactly and 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 indeed you know that's one of the things that distinguishes faith schools in law in England is that they are schools who are permitted to do that unlike yeah. other schools which are not permitted to do that by law um, and I have to teach a, a balanced curriculum for example of religious and, and, and about religions and non-religious worldviews um, faith schools one of the things that makes faith schools faith schools um, is that. Um, they don't have to do that. They can they they can teach a curriculum that is um, unbalanced in that sense. And so I think I think you're right to say um, that in in a way uh, a faith school of that sort is limiting choice. It's limiting the choice of the child. Um, and you 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 only had um, experience of one particular religion. In my ideal uh, state school, um, we would be uh, learning about. Um, religions of all sorts, religions and non-religious worldviews of all sorts, at least within, I mean, the curriculum, curriculum arguments about how that's possible and what the framework for that sort of learning might be. Um, I think that it, it certainly is possible because you can, uh, in the same way as you can become a good historian um, as a result of a school education that doesn't teach about everything that ever happened in the past, you can be um, a good uh, student of and knowledgeable about and a good navigator of different religions and beliefs um, without learning about every single religion and non-religious philosophy that's ever been invented. So I think that's a bit of a red herring sometimes. But um, I think that the ideal school, um, from my point of view, would be an air, would be a place where children learn about um, a full range of religions and beliefs in an open-minded way, in a critical, in the spirit of critical inquiry, um, but also in a spirit that recognises that all of these uh, religions and non-religious approaches are things that uh, people do believe, they do value, and so we understand, um, you know, we can make an imagine, we can have imaginative sympathy with the people who do believe these things by studying them, and also that we can, that they're the products of human heritage and human minds and human culture that are of value as a way for young people themselves to develop their own views um, against these beliefs or maybe adopt some of these beliefs and values of their own. So I think that's the attitude, both content and attitude, um, towards religions and beliefs, I think, um, is, is, is important in, in, in state schools. And the fact that religious schools, faith schools, places where those things I've just outlined are not required to take place, I think is bad. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development 
every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Multiple media outlets report on comments made by Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi in a Times Radio interview. In the interview, Mr Zahawi dismissed calls to ban smacking of children by parents in England. In Wales, following the introduction of the Children, Abolition of Defence of Reasonable Punishment Act, parents who tap a toddler on the behind risk arrest and a criminal record. Children's Commissioner Rachel D'Souza expressed admiration for the ban in Wales and stated she would be supportive if the government in England decided to do the same. In response to Dame Rachel's comments, Mr Zahawi told Times Radio, My very strong view is that actually we have got to trust parents on this and parents being able to discipline their children is something that they should be entitled to do. He went on to outline how his wife had occasionally disciplined their nine-year-old daughter with a light smack on the arm. While some groups have come out in support of what they call the Education Secretary's common sense approach, others have condemned his comments as out of touch. Earlier this week, Mr Zahawi also sparked discussion following comments reported in The Telegraph, which outlined his views that schools have a duty to inform parents if their child identifies as transgender. The comments prompted a wealth of concerns about the safeguarding implications of such an act. His comments on smacking are likely to lead to similar concerns. Following last month's publication of the Safeguarding Report on the case of Child Q, a number of local authorities have received Freedom of Information requests for details on strip searches carried out in their area. Data is being requested following the release of details about the searching of Child Q, who was taken out of an exam and strip search by two female officers while teachers waited outside. The Now Then magazine for Sheffield reports that South Yorkshire Police have received FOI requests as a result of the Child Q case. The case raised a number of questions around safeguarding, duty of care and the treatment of young people of colour by both police and schools. 
In the Channel Islands of Jersey, mask wearing and the need to work in classroom bubbles will be scrapped from Monday the 25th of April, according to ITV News. Government data suggests there has been a decrease in the number of cases on island. However, there is also a warning that measures could return if the cases escalate. Other measures, such as enhanced hygiene and increased ventilation, will remain in place. In Africa, the news website This Day reports on the launch of the Africa Education Medal, which recognises the work of educators in transforming education across the continent. It is aimed at telling the stories of those who have lit the spark of change and is open to all individuals working to improve the sector from pre-kindergarten to university education. The medal is launched by T4 Education in collaboration with HP and Intel. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, and with zero extra cost, using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. Calls to me. It being frozen meant I had to wait. The downside is making the sandwich. However, throwing 10 slices of bread down, adding filling and then into a Ziploc bag would be quite easy on a Sunday evening. You might need quite a bit of space in your freezer though. Next, I used the trusty thermos mug and noodles. I thought it was a good idea, but unlike a sandwich that you can eat on the go, I needed a fork and then had to consider not dripping it on my tie, so I actually had to stop and eat. So not as simple as a frozen sandwich, but I did have a hot lunch. Now hold on to your hats. I tried this again. I did enjoy a hot lunch, so I smashed the noodles up before I put the water in the second time around. That day, I drank my lunch. No need to find a fork, lid off, quick swig of noodles, genius. The downside I can see is washing the mug. I know I'll find it on the draining board waiting to be washed when I want to get out the door. Finally, I tried a snack bar. You can get these quite cheap online and you can find them to match most dietary needs. It was definitely the easiest option, but would be the most expensive over time. For me, it didn't feel as lunch-like, if I was being totally honest, but it did the job of rapid calorie input on the go. So, in conclusion, if you're not having lunch, why not try one of these ideas? You will definitely feel better for it. P.S. I googled International Lunch Day and it actually exists. However, it's on the 10th of March, so we've missed it. Gutted. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you have for your lunch. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Mm. Now, I, I was really keen to ask you about this. You mentioned the law and how obviously faith schools have a different status. And that, I must admit, is one of the things that frustrates me about the law in this country, that religions do have a bit of a sort of get out of jail free card that enables them to do things that no other organisation could do. But I wanted to ask you about collective worship, because I I currently work in a school that has that is not a faith school, um, we do not have any kind of collective worship. Now, is it still true that we ought to be? Because this is a Are really you working in a state area. school? You're working in yeah, a state, it's a state school. state, state yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, every state school in the country, unless it's uh, applied for a determination from its local authority, which most schools haven't, every school in the country is still required to have um, a daily act of, of worship. And um, mm. the. 
they um Ofsted no longer inspects it. Uh, they they did until about a decade ago. They no longer inspect it. But the last time they did inspect it, they found that most primary schools were complying, and most secondary schools weren't. Now, in recent years, actually, there has been an increase. Uh, I think um, in uh, the occurrence of collective worship in schools, actual worship in schools. Um, although I think it's at the sort of soft end of the voluntary controlled religious schools rather than um, in normal community schools. Uh, but certainly the case workload um, of uh, organisations like Humanist UK working with parents, especially primary school parents, um, who whose children have come home, you know, talking about these things that are happening in the school and the things that they're being told in assembly and who are sort of horrified by these uh, <laughs> these things. Because um, it raises a very difficult dynamic for a non, non-Christian parent um, who face difficult questions from their children um, and, and, and have trouble sometimes describing or explaining to their children why their children should believe what their teachers are saying in the afternoon, but not what they're <laughs> saying in the morning. <laughs> and, and it's a bit troubling, um, uh, as well as being in some cases, you know, quite horrendous ideas and quite dreadful values that are being imparted either explicitly or implicitly in these in these sessions. So um, the law is still in, in force. Um, we are, who knows how widely it's complied with, but my sense is it might be more complied with now than it was perhaps 10 years ago. Um, the, we are egregious internationally in this, England and Wales, you know, we're the only places in the world that have a law requiring our non-religious schools to have daily Christian worship. And that's pretty, you, know, we, 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 you and I, and maybe many people listening to this and many people in, in, in England, at least, sort of accept that this is something that happens, you know, that, oh yeah, prayers and assemblies, whatever, you know, we can maybe dimly remember it when we were at school. I didn't have it actually when I was at school, but lots of people you know, can dimly remember it. And so you forget how quite weird it is, you know, globally, um, for this to be a thing, but it, it is, you know, we are the only countries requiring it in the world. Um, and so... Um, you are we are, really? With it? Yeah, yeah. England and Wales are the only countries that require daily Christian Christian worship in, in their in their state schools. And so, and that's out of what, 197 countries. So it's wow. weird, you know, so we're an outlier, it's strange. Um, everyone knows why it happened. It happened in 1944 because um, it was a sort of act of um, establishment piety, you know, elite piety, when the education act went through at the end of a, a, a difficult war um, in a sort of uh, spirit of... Um, well, there was a you know a bit, a bit of a Christian spirit abroad in the years post nineteen forty five for whatever reason, whether it was because of the war or whether it was because of um, you know not wanting to be communists and godless and so on or for whatever reason it was that sort of um, historical moment. Um, very controversial at the time, of course, uh, extremely controversial law, uh, hard argued in Parliament, but it went through. And so we see it as part of the furniture, where it's actually a very strange uh, law. And of course, once you think about it, you know, properly in terms of the fact that, for example, most people of parental age today are not Christians. Mm. It's a really odd, uh, a really odd uh, law to maintain. And I think, you know, the very fact that, as you say, it's, it's patently obvious that most secondary schools are are ignoring it. Yes. Um, it, it's just a bit of a sort of anomaly, really, in our system now. I mean, I object to it because it gets in the way of better things. You know, when Ed Balls was the education secretary, a very brief uh, career for him as education secretary at the end of the Brown government. Well, so long time ago now, isn't it? I was going to say just <laughs> a couple of years ago. I was about to say it was a couple of years ago. quite a while ago. ago. <laughs> 13 years ago. Um, and he, his, his Department for Education or Department for Children's Schools and Families, as it then was, um, produced some really excellent resources, um, especially for primary schools on um, uh, social and emotional aspects of learning, 
um, which had recommended, amongst other things, lots of really good assemblies. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, those resources were excellent. They were, of course, they were um, like, like all of the, like most of the pre-2010 education reforms, they were evidence-based, based on international examples, very scientific and, and really um, very strong. All of, all of those things were obviously abolished in 2010 by the coalition government when they came in. But um, this, uh, these resources were excellent. Um, but of course, they were technically unlawful. If, if when schools used them uh, to deliver their assemblies, they were breaking the law on, on, on collective worship if they were doing these things instead of collective worship. And I think that's, that's sort of what collective worship is. It's not just a, an archaic, you know, 70-year-old law that's a bit silly. It stands in the way of what could be a really good requirement on schools to provide assemblies, um, you know, that would enhance the spiritual, moral, social, cultural development um, of young people. Um, and I think that, you know, that could... That there already is, uh, there already are a lot of resources out there that help schools to do that. But I think if that were the legal requirement instead of the collective worship requirement, there'd be um, a much faster development and much wider use of those sorts of resources. So I, I object to the collective worship law not just because it's bad in itself, in principle, indefensible really, but because like a lot of these things in England, where old religious laws hang around like zombie sort of laws, they don't just um, do a bit of harm; they actually prevent a lot of good. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I must admit, because because I work in a a non a completely non-religious state school, um, uh, and previously I was in a grammar school that had a church foundation, and mm. but again, no collective worship, but just once a year on foundation day, we would suddenly go down to the church, <laughs> and you could literally see the kids go, "What the hell? What is this? Where are we?" I know. They were so yeah. confused. It was it was really very just worth doing just for the amusement value. But um, just down the road from us, one of our main feeder schools um, is, I, I thought, well, let's, you know, I know I know my own school's ethos and I know that that, that God doesn't get a mention anywhere. Um, but I thought, well, let's, let's pick the nearest feeder school I can find. My goodness me, that was an education. Um, it says, we believe we are all made in the image of God. Uh, Pupils, governors, parents and staff are equal in the eyes of God. As a Christian school, we are servant hearted in all that we do. We demonstrate Christian values. It goes on and on and on. Yes, yes, So I yes. thought, wow, that's what's yeah. going on down the road. <laughs> well, I know. And I don't think it's a surprise, actually, that um, most of our casework, for example, comes from primary school parents, like I said, not just in worship mm. and the broader, broader curriculum, actually, because I think the type of... Um, stuff now that parents are encountering like that in there and, and sometimes you know it might be the only school they can go to um yeah. our, our president of human chicane alice roberts um for example her children uh perforce have to go to um a church of England primary school in her area and she was interviewed about it in various newspapers um and she she, she continues to be um i mean she sends me from time to time the, the stuff they bring home or the materials they're using at school um and it is. I mean, you would not look at it and think, OK, this is the sort of material which is respecting the freedom of belief of children, which is, um, you know, uh, is, this, is creating the environment, the education environment that you would want free thinking, young potential members of society and citizens and, um, and just human beings, you know, being developed to, to make choices in their lives, to have um, a critical spirit and a spirit of inquiry 
um, this is not the sort of material that is going to contribute to that, that development. Now, uh, there's absolutely no way, of course, at all that one could ever say that all religious schools are the same. Um, but I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's enough, I've got enough experience of enough schools uh, and enough parents with enough materials to say that there are substantial numbers of schools that are um, making use of resources that really don't respect uh, children's freedom of religion or belief or the spirit of critical and intellectual inquiry, which at all ages should be the, uh, the hallmark of education in state schools. Mm. I mean, I very much hope, I, I hope that that's the minority of schools. And of course, we, we are focusing quite naturally, perhaps because of our, our own personal cultural milieu on, on Church of England schools. Um, but I, I was looking at the Humanist UK website earlier, and you were obviously, you're talking about faith schools of all denominations. Mm. And I was very interested in actually some statistics from your own site, because one of the points that, that your organisation makes is that people talk about the great results that faith schools tend to get, and you, you, you try and sort of explode that myth and you talk about that, yeah. yeah and you talk about covert selection that that by definition religious schools are selective and and there is quite a lot of evidence that shows you therefore are actually selecting by by the back door but mm. interestingly um and it certainly stands up if you look at your evidence on church of england and roman catholic schools but it doesn't seem to be entirely true of for example, um, Muslim schools who seem you, to have quite a high percentage of send students and free school meal students, which I found really interesting. Yes, it is. Um, it's but it's 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 not a higher relative percentage. So um, even in uh, Jewish and Muslim schools, for example, um, the proportion of free school meals students and send students is lower than the general population in that school area. Okay, so you, it's, yeah. it's, uh, so it's in relation still, to the still, area. That's uh, right. Okay. So, it's, so, it's, so it's still relatively affluent, even though at that point, relative affluence is taking is is is, is on a, you know, at a point on the general affluent scale that is very low. Do you see what I mean? Because mm, I, I mean, the the percentage of students on free school meals in secondary schools that are defined as Muslims, thirty four percent. Yes, and it should be even higher. Oh, um, if, if they were if they were representing the the local population that's right that's really interesting well, there's other discussions to be had yeah i mean that's a whole about, other yeah. uh, the, the, the the nature of, of of racial injustice and socioeconomic inequality mm. um in england in particular um i mean you can it's very severe as we all know but you can read that across as well into a lot of uh, religious schooling and that's sort of an aspect of um state faith schools that we haven't discussed yet because it's not just about the curriculum it's about the intake the diversity of a school population you know yeah. the, one, the, the second thing that um uh is uh, one of the, almost the constitutive um aspects of faith schools is not just that they can teach a particular type of curriculum whereas other state schools can't teach uh, uh that sort of subjective curriculum it's that they can select their pupils large numbers of the schools that this is this is not true of all faith schools again you know they're different from each other there's a diversity of faith schools um, but one of the things that faith schools can do which community schools cannot do is to select uh pupils based on their parental religion um, yeah. and that of course gives rise not just to 
uh, religious selection, which it obviously does, it's intended to give rise to religious selection, obviously, which is, is, is bad, I would say, because schools should have diverse populations so that children can learn from and with um, others of different backgrounds. And we know that that's vital for the, the moral and social development of children. So it doesn't just lead to religious selection, which deprives children of, of diverse experiences in that respect. It also naturally leads to socioeconomic and um, racial selection not just because um, certain religions are correlated with certain ethnicities, although that is definitely true, um, but also because um, when you've got complicated selection procedures anywhere, it's always middle-class parents who know how to best navigate those systems. Um, and so, for example, um, if there are religious tests applied at schools, like you've got to go to church a certain number of times or you've got to have a baptism certificate or, you know, whatever it might be, different things for Sikh schools and, and so on, whatever those tests might be, um, more affluent, better educated parents are more able to, you know, plan ahead, deploy those things, um, get the school that they want for their child. So socioeconomic uh, selection follows too. So the exclusion of poorer children, um, the exclusion of, of children whose uh, um, ethnicity doesn't correlate with the religion in question, and the exclusion of children uh, from different uh, religious backgrounds. These things all follow where, where state schools select on religious grounds. And mm. that's bad in itself, you know, I think, because the school is not just a place where education occurs, where young people are prepared um, for their lives as, you know, as active citizens, as healthy individuals, as happy, engaged, fulfilled, intelligent um, people. Um, they're also places where society is formed, you know, they're institutions of our, of, our, of our social state. And I think it's important that um, people from different backgrounds learn and mix together from the earliest age possible if we're to have a, a more cohesive future society as well. So I think that that's one of the, one of the other many arguments, and we've only dealt with two of the arguments against them so far, um, but that's one of the other many arguments against state-based schools, that selection and that division. Hmm. Do you think that perhaps if one, so philosophically, wouldn't it be wonderful if, like, there's choices and choices, aren't there? But philosophically, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody had a choice about exactly what kind of school they went to, and each of those schools would support a liberal ethos as well as having their own ethos? But is it the fact that, the, just like with the grammar school debate, wouldn't it be wonderful if, yes, grammar school's great, we have them, but the reality is that it creates a greater divide in society between the rich and the poor. That's the the that's the symptom. real consequence. Yeah, that's exactly. the real consequence yeah. of their yeah, existence, yeah, yeah. as as we do seem to have overwhelming evidence for. It wasn't it wasn't the intention, but it is the reality. Is that how you would see it? That the reality is, according to your organisation's research, that this promotes inequality. Yes, that's that's the that's the reality of selection. Yeah, that's the reality of religious selection. That's right. And of course, again, a bit like in relation to the law on collective worship, we are very unusual in allowing our state religious schools to select. Other countries, um, other countries in Europe, for example, have state-funded religious schools, but they can't select their children on religious grounds. So the ethos right. is of a particular religion, the curriculum is, I mean, that is real choice, isn't it? Because the, that's choice for parents um, rather than choice for schools. Because the other thing about religious selection, of course, which brings us back to the topic of choice, is that many people say, oh, 
uh, we should have faith schools so that parents can choose them. Well, it's not parents choosing the schools in the current system, it's schools choosing the parents in our system because, the, because of the selective um, criteria that apply. Other countries do have state religious schools, but they, they, they aren't uh, selective. Um, the UK, together with, I think it's Estonia, Israel and Ireland, are the only four countries in the, uh, in the OECD, which is a group of particularly developed, um, economically developed countries. We're the only four countries in that large group of, of, of rich Western countries that allow their state religious schools to select on religious grounds. So there is a, there is a possibility um, of that. Now, for me, that would solve my problem of social division, Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't solve my problem of um, open curriculum. Um, now, another way of trying to deal with with both problems comes to us uh, from some of those countries in Europe that have common schools. So I'm thinking, I think it's still like this in the Netherlands. I think it's still like it in Belgium. And it's certainly like it in parts of Germany, where you have children um, who are educated together, and but they can. Um, and and the, the national they have a, a curriculum that applies, you know, all the subjects taken together. But then their parents can choose choose for them to go to a particular religious or humanist class. So they have a sort of, um, uh, a conf- I suppose, a, a confessional syllabus. You know, it's devised by humanists or Catholics or Jews or whatever. You know, so and, and for that period of that, um, uh, for that lesson. They split out and they do these uh, these lessons. Now, I I think that that position has has a lot to recommend it compared with our situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that um, it's not that wouldn't be the ideal that I'd want to see, um, but I think it would be better than separating children into separate religious schools. So I think that's something worth exploring. Mm. Would you, for example, want us to be, I mean, everybody always compares us to France, where obviously they've completely separated religion from, well, everything really, from education and you're not allowed to talk about it in the workplace. Or would you like to see us heading down that route? Well, I I think that France is a bogeyman for all English people. And that's why why, (laughs) um, anti-secularists often bring it up. but it's also a very different, a very different society with very different political traditions and cultures. I mean, France is a republic, and and, and I think it's really hard actually sometimes to even separate the um, the secular elements of their constitution from the republican elements of their constitution. People talk about um, uh, the way that France uh, treats religion in their public life, but the way they treat religion in their public life is not that different from how they treat regional diversity, for example, or regional languages. You know, it's a very um, centralised Republican ethos in France. It, 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 they've run into trouble most recently, of course, um, because of the way that um, the right wing in France in particular have tried to use secularism as a stick to beat Muslims with. Um, mm. And that has that has given rise to a lot of ugly situations. Um, there is a, a version of French secularism which is very defensive of the uh, religious rights of, of Muslims. For example, when um, right-wing, various right-wing politicians attempted to ban burkinis, if you remember those, in the south of France, this uh, sort of um, body-covering garment for, for swimwear mm. uh, that some Muslim women were wearing. And some, I don't know if many were people, people even were wearing it, to be honest, because one of the other things that the French right-wing does is often dreams up situations that, 
don't really exist. But um, anyway, some women were, and they attempted to ban it, um, and the and did ban it. But the bans were then overturned by the French courts, citing the secular principle, saying, you know, these people have a right to wear whatever they want to wear in this situation because it's it's their freedom of religion or belief is not harming anyone else, right? Mm. And so that that's French secularism, um, as much as um, uh, the banning of headscarves in schools is French secularism, and you know. I don't agree with um, uh, a lot of what is proposed or done under uh, French-style secularism, um, but I do think it's often caricatured uh, in in Britain, um, and so I would I would always caution against it. I don't think French-style secularism would fit with uh, our situation in England. Um, we are much more likely to, and I think rightly, by the way, um, we are much more likely to accept that religions and non-religious worldviews such as humanism have a place in the state education system, that children, that these are aspects of the human heritage, but they're also um, aspects of many people in the world today's daily lives. Um, If we want to be citizens of the world and of our own diverse country, if we want to have the opportunity to fully develop our own ideas and values against other ideas and taking what we can from from the best of human thought and if we want to understand um, the history and heritage and culture of the world then we must learn about uh, religions and humanism um, in, in, edu- in, in our schools um, and I think we also should respect the as far as we can compatible with the rights of other people the freedom of religion and belief of young people within our schools as well. I mean, I think that there should be spaces made available in our schools for people, young people of different religions and beliefs um, at suitable ages, obviously, if they want to engage in religious practices, you no know, religious worship or, or, or whatever. Um, I don't think that schools should be places where religion is banned um, in the in the in the in the way that many French secularists do. Um, but I do think that schools shouldn't be places where religion is promoted. Hmm. Certainly, it's what I see. It's been really wonderful working in a state school that does does not have any uh, faith. Um, but it really does mean that all religions are treated equally. Mm, um, that's a great and benefit so, of it, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're in Ramadan at the moment, and that, that's being talked about a lot. We have you know, a reasonably high percentage of Muslim students. Um, but, you know, Easter was talked about as well. And, and it, it has been a real eye opener to me for how it can work. It can work. We do have such a mix of different faiths in our school. I know a lot of the staff are Catholic, for example, but uh, I only know that from, you know, personal individual conversations with them, not because right. uh, it's part of the school or, or shared with with the students so it yeah I think your vision is certainly possible and really I guess what's interesting is how many people are so passionate about the need for faith schools some people will defend them uh, vehemently and I, I wonder if um, we obviously we have focused on on church schools do you think there's an argument I mean we, we have seen the growth of anti-semitism in this country and in other countries. And what about the need for minority religions to self-define? Do you, would you not agree that perhaps faith schools have a part in that? 
Well, I think that the... I mean, this was an argument that was used back in 2002, of course, when the Blair government began the expansion of state religious schools, which we're still living under and we're still expanding. Um, the, the argument then, uh, and it was made very persuasively by a friend of mine, Indigit Singh, who's now a member of the House of Lords, Lord Singh. Um, and he said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll say there's no need for Sikh schools on the day when no Sikh children are bullied in um, community schools for being Sikhs. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> you can understand the emotional... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah content of that of that appeal but is it the best way um to make sure you know is 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 separate religious schools the best way to make sure that um all of our children grow up in a spirit as far as possible a tolerant spirit without prejudice um and valuing you know justice and equal treatment and freedom um i don't know that it is i don't think there's any evidence that it is i think the evidence actually is to the contrary um, that in places of the world where religious schools have been separate, instead of fostering uh, inclusion and um, mutual respect uh, between people of different beliefs, instead it's helped to fuel communalism, sectarianism and division. That, that's a broad brush characterization. I don't say it's true in every case, in every place and every time, but I think that that's just as plausible an outcome of separate schooling as to say, oh, well, it'll help children from different um minoritized religious communities feel safer or be safer so i don't think i don't really think there's much evidence for that um it is it is troubling um the extent i think to which um uh religious schools are growing specifically amongst people from minoritized religions so um for example the there are more children of Jewish parents educated in Jewish schools now, proportionately, um, than probably ever before in history. Um, there's been a slow uh, expansion of the, a slow increase in, in that in that proportion. And I think that's concerning because I think that um, if you think that, I mean, you mentioned the growth of anti-Semitism, certainly expressions of anti-Semitism have increased um, in recent years. Um, but there's also um, a long history of Jewish people and Jewish communities being very firmly integrated into um, British society. Uh, and I, I might make the argument the other way and say that one of the reasons for that in the past might have been um, the fact that there was integration within schools of children from Jewish backgrounds with children from non-Jewish backgrounds. And maybe that's put at risk by the growth of uh, of, of, of the portion of children of Jews who are in Jewish schools. Do you see what I mean? You could make the argument one way or the other. Um, mm. And human life, unfortunately, isn't a laboratory where you can replay history and do it another way. Um, <laughs> but, but what we do know um, is that, for example, children from different backgrounds who are educated together from an early age, there's a great Save the Children report about this very recently, um, uh, have are much more likely to understand difference, to be comfortable with difference, to be empathetic with people from different backgrounds than children that are educated without that um, diversity. So I think the I think the there is a strong argument that children being educated with children from different backgrounds, with different experiences, looking different, being different, having different home environments, different ideas, um, is valuable to all children. Certainly on your the Humanist UK website, you cite two examples uh, that we have witnessed in very recent history and are still witnessing of separation at its worst, and that is Northern Ireland and Bradford. 
Yes, and of course, in both those cases, um, separate schooling didn't create the problems that existed, um, but it, it, it helped to perpetuate them, helped still yeah. uh, to, to perpetuate the problems um, and to fuel um, division, misunderstanding, uh, social dis-ease, um, and also um, inequality and injustice as well um, between communities and individuals. Yeah. So obviously schools need an ethos and you've talked about um, how that's perhaps what defines Humanist UK as being different from something like the secular society in that you do have a, a set of beliefs, a, a, an ethos if you like. What, in your experience, what, how many faith schools really do weave their religion into their their daily life? So, for example, the the this, the uh, feeder school down the road, which I was stunned to discover um, when I looked mm. at their resource. I mean, do I do I believe that's trotted out day in day out? I'm not sure I do because mm. I don't see any evidence in it in the students that come to us. So, what? percentage do you think of faith schools really do make their faith front and centre? Well I think I mean before I answer that question I might say that um, I'm sure your right isn't trotted out every day and uh, um, in, in every way but in a way as the educationist humanist educationist Margaret Knight said in the mid-20th century that sort of makes it worse because it's just as bad to have a sort of hypocritical <laughs> approach <laughs> to your ethos where you say oh yes these things are very important and very special but we don't really talk about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> classic church of england though well that but that but you see well i don't know i mean i you i've got no experience of the church of england you you have you you mentioned earlier that we're both of the same cultural milieu i'm not sure that's true i mean i had zero contact with the church of england growing up in england um how did you manage that well i didn't i mean it was never around i don't know really (laughs) just uh my parents you know my my mum was a humanist my grandparents were and we didn't we, we were a very a multicultural primary school where there was no, um, you know, and that was a community school. And um, my secondary school was a, uh, I was there on an assisted place. So it was a sort of slightly old fashioned school, but the assemblies were always Marcus Aurelius or something like that, rather than um, uh, religion. So um, I had no oh, okay. contact with Angl- Anglicanism at all. I'm in no way a cultural Anglican, unlike many humanists that I meet who sort of say, oh, of course, I'm a cultural Anglican. And I think, oh, what does that mean? How interesting. Um, <laughs> it doesn't turn out to be very interesting usually, but um, I don't have any contact with it at all. So, But I think you're, I think you're right. I think that, that is, there is a bit of Church of England heritage in, in, in buried in that. Um, and that's one of, to come back to Margaret Knight, that's one of the things that Margaret Knight really hated. She said, you know, this is worse because if, if you, if you, coming back to parents trying to explain to their children, as we were saying earlier in relation to collective worship, why they should believe their teachers in the afternoon, but not in the morning. Mm. To have this sort of ethos that you uh, foreground or parade or, or pay lip service to, but that, I mean, children aren't stupid. They can tell pretty early that um, this is something that people might be saying, but not really believing, or this mm. might be something that they, um, the teachers are saying, but they sort of get the sense their teachers don't really want to be saying it, or they're <laughs> saying it one day when the when when a vicar comes in, but not the next day when they put all that away. You know, this is actually this is actually intellectually damaging. Uh, it's not just um, like a bit of a bit of sort of eye rolling. Oh, that's the way we are in England. This is a this is a strange way to be raising children with these um, uh, ideas that are not not exactly true but we say that they're true but we don't really believe them and they're not really true and other people don't believe them either but you know this is uh this is very 
um, I think, uh, um, mentally impoverishing. So, um, so I think, so I think that, sorry, I've forgotten the original question because I got so uh, carried away thinking about the the hypocrisy of, oh, ethos, ethos, that's right. Um, Yeah, I think that uh, one of my first, where I've worked first, actually, in my working life before I started at Humanist was a place called the Citizenship Foundation, which doesn't quite exist now in the same format. It's, It's changed its name and its work. But um, citizenship education at the time was very popular to just been added to national curriculum. And one of the projects that the Citizenship Foundation was doing, loads of projects, really great projects, one of the projects they were doing was um, how schools could develop their own ethos uh, statement in a deliberative, uh, democratic way as a community. And I thought that was absolutely wonderful um, because you started with pupils and to some extent with their families, of course, and with teachers as well, and all members of the school community. And you started to think about the things that you valued, um, the way that you wanted people to behave, the way you wanted to behave, what your best sort of hopes for yourself were. Um, and they built out of this uh, a school ethos, which was you know, grounded, genuinely grounded, um, in the desires and best best instincts of the children and all the other members of the school community. And then they tried to live up to it, you know, and wove it into um, the life of their school, um, their curriculum. I think that's the way to develop an ethos. Mm. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. I think I think it's, it's really difficult to create an ethos. It's mm. difficult to make sure that all staff, because let's face it, they're the the, the leaders in a school that they live it every day um but but I think it is it is the ideal and my my previous school had its in its mission statement it started with to provide a first class liberal education mm. and the new head wanted to take out the word liberal oh dear and well, we all went berserk, Andrew, so he didn't get his way. But it was just, it was fascinating, the response, you know, the, the strength of feeling amongst the staff that, you know, it, it really made you think, gosh, this is who we feel. It's we who we are. are. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. I think that's good. I think that's good. And I think it's a bit like collective worship. When you have these religious, religious ethos statements that people feel they have to have or they have to say, I'm with this or with that, and actually most of the pupils aren't, and they're never going to live up to. I mean, that one you read out is pretty. <laughs> I mean, most pupils aren't going to believe that they're children of God, at least if they're um, if they fit with the normal demographic of the beliefs of people in this country. They're not going to believe that. So, how can you start forming a whole school ethos on the base of an unshared belief? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems complete. It's completely ridiculous. And so. Um, and, you know, the people who advocate for it would probably say something like, oh, well, there's different ways of understanding it. Um, and in fact, it's what the school's about. It's not just, you know, what the pupil's about, but the school stands in these Christian values and you know, people come to it. Well, even that, even saying that, I think, is, is, is a pretty bad admission because, you know, to my mind, at least, the school should be a community where, um, where they're bound by uh, certain values and an ethos, not exclusively, but, you know, inclusively. Um, and... You know, no, I think I think that one of the most pernicious uh, defences that has been raised in recent years of religious schools is that they somehow got a better ethos um, than other schools. I, I think I would be tempted to say the opposite. Mm. Well, actually, if you read on, the, I mean, it, it's a huge chunk of their website. It says we are inclusive. High quality education is a right for all, no matter where you come from or who you are. OK, 
But next to that, it says, we provide a rich education. We believe that we all have unique God-given gifts. Well, there you go. Um, I mean, that is, uh, <laughs> that is a completely exclusive statement. <laughs> it is extraordinary, isn't it? And I say, yeah. I had no idea to, until I... Uh, until I looked at it. Now, you, in your uh, mentioning of your own schooling and background, mentioned Marcus Aurelius, which oh, is a yes. wonderful segue ah. into me <laughs> asking you about the fact that you're a classicist, because as a Latin teacher, I cannot leave that unaddressed. Ah, uh, brilliant. So how did brilliant. you take the, the, the path to, to classics? Well, you know, it was it's one of those things that I think of as being... Uh, one of the dis- most decisive life-changing moments. Um, and it was when, uh, so, you know, I, I, uh, I was the first in my immediate family to, to go to university. Um, and um, I come from a background where um, education wasn't uh, the, uh, the business of, of, of my parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, you know, um, they uh, left school early um, worked in man- manual occupations and so on. Um, and then I went on an assisted place. Do you remember the assisted place scheme? Well, mm. maybe you don't, but it, 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 it existed, for those who don't, it existed from 1979 to 1997. It was a way for poor children, children from poor backgrounds, um, who passed certain academic tests to have their education paid for by the state and their school uniform and their educational trips and everything else at their local academically selective independent schools. Um, and that's what happened to me. So I was plucked very suddenly uh, from uh, the environment that I'd been in and sent off to this school, um, which was uh, highly academic, you know, all those sort of traditional things that um, uh, English academic schools have been. And of course, one of the things that I encountered there um, was classics, Latin, and then we were very lucky that the school still taught ancient Greek. And I just think that all of a sudden, um, it, I mean, it was probably lots of things in my education that actually opened up these thoughts, but it feels like retrospective and it felt like at the time, the thing that was most, the study that was most opening up new worlds, making me see things that I've never seen before, appreciate the length of human history and the diversity of human culture and the nature of the human story and the relative nature of our values and our habits and, and, and the ways that we behave and the long heritage also of our own uh, uh, society and the society that I was living in, um, you know, it, it suddenly all just came together in the study of the ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world um, and Latin and Greek in particular. And it, it just, I loved it. I loved all of it. I loved the drama, um, the philosophy, the stories, the architecture, the the morals, the ideas, um, the religion, and so I and so I I I, I pursued it, and like that it is what I ended up studying at, at university. And I still think um, uh, that it is the thing that's most formed me um, in my in my values, in my attitudes. Together, I think, with, with the social background of my early childhood, which was also very much for me, sort of Midlands, working class ideas and, um, and habits and <laughs> um, uh, family life. Together with that uh, family background, I think the study of classics and thinking about the ancient world, which I still do every day. I mean, I'm talking to you now within front, the three books on the table in front of me, actually, as I'm sitting here talking to you, um, are A People's History of the Classics by Edith Hall and Henry Stead, which is a very interesting history of 
um, working class uh, engagement with the classics from the late 17th century to the early 20th century. Um, Francesca Stavrakopoulou's book on the Judeo-Christian God, which of course is, is good ancient history, um, and a very academic book about um, uh, about uh, a which is that's um, uh, far too much to go into on this subject, but it's about um, uh, representations of actors and um, camp men, I suppose, um, in in ancient Greek uh, literature and, uh, and and Roman poetry. So you see, I'm still surrounded by uh, classics all the time, and I think it's um, it's my great sort of un unpursued career i suppose really Do you, is it yeah, something that so. occult you think you you could have gone i could have gone academic? that i could have gone that way i think i could have gone that way yes but uh um i obviously i didn't so i'm full of admiration for you and everyone who teaches classics especially in state schools i make sure i get my monthly subscriptions off to the to classics for all and i follow the iris project online and i'm always you know so happy to see classics being taught because if it weren't for that um really unlikely event of having been plucked by this government scheme out of state education and into independent schools certainly in the 80s i mean it's different today thanks to you know a lot of efforts of people like you and others who are teaching classics in state schools but if that hadn't happened to me a very unlikely uh, event to have occurred i would never have encountered this these words these ideas these people these places that have completely changed my life and so i think that um the teaching of classics in state schools is one of the, the biggest gifts you can give to, to, to children. Well, having, I, having, I've only ever taught in the state sector. I've been incredibly lucky. I've had two jobs that I just fell into, and I, and I mean very literally fell into them. I, I have been lucky, but I, I guess I'm therefore in this bubble where Latin is thriving in state schools because that's me. Um, but mm. I just read a stat the other day, surveys from the British Council revealed that Latin is taught at key stage three in 2.7 percent of state schools mm. compared to around half of independent well that's mm. horrendous mm. isn't it yeah well i think so of course um it's it's very difficult to make that argument appeal to the majority of the population i'm afraid mm, but then I, I don't know well again maybe i'm in a little bubble that's entirely possible but so many people i know desperately seem to want it and yes. I've never found I've never had trouble recruiting in the very early days when I started at my current comprehensive there was I did get a couple of very interesting phone calls from parents who didn't see the point of it but um that that since then there's been no problem at all and and the all I guess is oh goodness okay well you know well, you know they're a bit puzzled but uh really but yeah. if their child enjoys it and, and uh, they're interested in it that they're, they're not well yeah, I think you've been lucky I don't know if you're in a bubble but you certainly seem to encounter some very lucky loving parents um I think that um one of the things of course that people always say is well what's it for what's the use of it and this is my experience too my father in particular and my father's parents I think were um asked that question when I was at school you know why why you know it was it was seen to be especially my dad I remember it basically imparted to me the idea that this was completely useless. <laughs> and that, that, that argument I've never understood that. I mean, what's the point of anything? What's the point of trigonometry for the vast majority of us? But apparently, we've all got to do it at GCSE. You know, right, the exactly. vast, you know, unless you're going to become an architect, you probably won't be using it. No. Um, you know, we won't. We don't use anything beyond basic literacy and numeracy. 
no, most of no, us. So, so no. yeah, I've never understood that. What's the point of Shakespeare? What's the point of you know, well, you, exactly. you could make that argument course, about any academic subject. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, of course, I agree with you completely. So you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're arguing with the, with, the, with the convinced already here. Um, but uh, yeah, and it, it is about what it means to be human, the richness of your life. You know, what, what classics yeah. gives you is perspective and fulfilment and interest and colour and warmth. You know, you can walk through this, this society, especially Western society that we live in, and you can understand it. You can make sense of it. It can, you know, classics can tell you who you are, why you're here, what's going on, um, and with an insight that's very precious. So that's what's in it for for people. Mm. Should be anyway. That's not and quite I think... what I said to my dad, but there you go. <laughs> um, I think one of the other things about it is it, it it's it's a safe place to stand to look at some very big ethical questions. You know, it, it's 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 near enough to us in history and relevant enough to us that we we get it but it's far yes. enough away it's distant enough that we can talk about i mean things like slavery well exactly now, i was going I to know, say modern historians avoid that topic like the plague yes but, but to talk about it in in the ancient world it feels safe and and i i you can address it with really young children and they can talk about it quite confidently because it feels like oh well that's the ancient world that's it it's different Yes, I agree. Um, I, I do worry sometimes that we romanticise slavery in the ancient world through the ways that we teach Latin in particular. You know, the slaves are always quite happy. Um, oh, yeah. And, and... But, that, but again, that's what I like to address that with the students. I mean, because the very textbooks you're using, you know, Cambridge yeah. Latin course is just about to relaunch itself. But <laughs> yes, there's yeah. lots of uh, jolly, happy slaves. Um, and you say, OK, so what cultural values is this reflecting when was this exactly written you know let's exactly. think about that i think that's really important and the and the other thing it does is that you know it's very hard so i think one of the greatest things that you can learn um is i'm not a relativist person obviously in terms of my moral values i believe there are universal standards and that they do exist and that they're real in in, in human societies and that we can strive to understand them and, and and you know live up to them but i do think that you know that lots of aspects of our societies are relative, you know, and, and so to have a sort of um, a grown up mature sense of the relativism that is real between societies and places and values and, you know, why do, why do some people um, uh, eat their dead and others bury them? I mean, that's a pretty graphic <laughs> example, but you know what I mean? Um, you know, it's really hard to, to, to open people's minds to the truth of relativism in that sense not in the moral sense, but in that cultural sense, um, by looking at societies in the world today, mm. or even in really recent history, you know, because you get you get accused of all sorts of um, cultural uh, characterised, you know, caricatures or um, prejudices, and sometimes that's true. But like you say, to hone those skills instead by looking at cultures that are, as it were, safely dead mm. and, and buried, although their influence lives on, is again a very safe space to do that sort of intellectual development in, um, not just looking at ethical issues like you say, like slavery or infanticide or um, the treatment of women or whatever, um, but or racism actually. And there's lots of interesting literature now about um, concepts of race in in Greece and Rome. Mm. Um, you know, really interesting. Um, but it, it's not just a safe space to explore those ethical questions. It's a safe space to explore even the very concept of cultural relativism, because you can see, you know these societies that have so much in common with us, but also so many 
differences. I think the differences, I think the weirdness of ancient societies is actually undertaught, or at least it was when I was at school. Um, you know, I, I, I like that HBO series, Rome. Did you see it? I expect you yes. did, you know. I thought that was, one thing that was really good uh, in that, I thought, is how it made the city of Rome seem so weird. <laughs> you know, it was, it did it with a few sort of orientalizing tropes, which were quite lazy in a way, you know, lots of color and lots of uh, sort of making it look more like, um, uh, you know, the East than mm -hmm. the West. But um, but but the, the point of it, making it seem like not, not like Washington DC, mm. but like a weird ancient place, I thought was really uh, nice about it. And I think the weirdness of ancient societies, we can we could sometimes dwell on a bit, a bit more. Um, but in general, I think it's I think classics is 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 the best way to understand people and and their societies. Hmm. Well, there we go. That's a fantastic plug for the subject. <laughs> for classics. But yeah. For, forget forget all this stuff about religious schools. It's class. That's what we should really have done the whole the whole conversation on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we could we could bring back the ancient uh, religion, maybe. I mean, you were talking about you know having children being exposed to all the different ideas. I'm very um, sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic with um uh, at least with sort of Olympian. Uh, religion um not not the practices of it not animal sacrifice and, and and that sort of thing um but the you know the plurality of of different uh deities for different people and aspects you know the idea that you could have a favorite <laughs> and sort of and, and and choose one you know choose one that reflected you um rather than having to reflect it you know the idea that i would sort of think right i'm going to you know i'm going to choose as my patron athena because I just, I think it's really lovely, you know, learning and wisdom and I want to be a, a thoughtful person and these are the sort of standards I want to live up to. Or, you know, I'm going to choose, um, I'm going to choose Venus because, you know, I really, well, you know, all those things. Whatever. Or, you know, I'm going to be a devotee of Bacchus because I think that, you know, modern life is too straight laced and you've got to let go and the, you know the the spirit in all of us needs to be balanced by this sort of like bit of wildness now and again you know i really like the idea that you could um feel an affinity with a particular idea and have that idea or attitude that you feel your personal affinity with uh, representing the deity and sort of give you a focus for this uh um i i like it i like it mm, i've always felt that it it certainly is a far more logical way to explain the vagaries of fortune. That yeah, exactly. One day exactly. life seems to be great, next day you get splattered by because you, you've right. annoyed one of the numerous gods. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. It kind of it kind of makes sense of the world for me. It gives you a lot of agency as well. I mean, I know that you know, obviously, fear is one of the things that's, that creates gods, um, as a famous Roman said. Um, but the you know the feeling of control and agency that uh, religion gives people or at least gave people historically the idea that the university can be structured and sort of brought into line and you can Im Im implore these powerful beings to to be on your side in different ways you know I think that's that that's quite calming in a way isn't it because it's also um, and also you might get it wrong or they might just have a bad day and they're gonna they're gonna screw with you anyway you know whatever you do that's mm. a sort of a nicer way of a more sympathetic and generous to yourself way of being than to think that than concepts like sin or you know divine punishment or the idea of the world has been structured in a certain way and you know i find 
um, at least some aspects of, of Hellenic religion much more sympathetic uh, and appropriate to the human condition, or at least to my condition, <laughs> um, than, than the rather austere um, uh, God, which I don't know much about, of course, but not having had that upbringing, but the, it seems very austere to me, God of, of, of certain types of Christians, at least. Well, I didn't expect the conversation to take that turn, but it, <laughs> it has, and it's been absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Teachers Talk Radio. So if any teachers are, are listening and they are interested in learning more about humanism, where should they go? Well, I think the best website for, for teachers is the Understanding Humanism website, where there are resources for all key stages and, and also more information about uh, humanist approaches, uh, full stop. So yes, understanding humanism is the thing to Google. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all of your insights. And I think you have turned me back towards being ah. suspicious of faith schools. I think I think I'll 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 say that. Um, I'm going to think on it further. Yes, but, you must think. Um, Keep thinking. That's yeah, right. Never stop thinking. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the blooming trouble with liberalism, isn't it? It does make life incredibly complicated. You can see every side of the question, I suppose, <laughs> and that's the problem. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm afraid I think this comes with age as well. I think ageing yes. liberals, uh, no offence to you, I mean, I'm speaking of myself as well uh, when I say this, is you become more and more think, oh, well, you know, um, first of all, let's not fall out about it. And then, and then secondly, well, there are a lot of perspectives here to look at from one side to the other and so on and so forth. I think but that's I, it. That's it. I had it nailed at 20. You know, I, oh, I knew well. exactly what, sh- what everybody should be doing. And everybody, if everybody did, as I said, then the world would be a much better place. But, um... but you, must, you must fortify yourself there with, with, the, <laughs> with, the, with the reflection that people who aren't liberal don't have those sorts of self-doubts and don't see those sorts of... Um, uh, shades of of, of, of grey in these in these questions, and so they set out to determinedly change the world for the worst. So put some put some lead in your pencil um, as a as, as a liberal and and and, and settle on your <laughs> convictions and fight for them. Aren't we seeing that now in the world? The importance of fighting for liberal convictions against people who are illiberal. I think so. There you go. That's my that's my that's my collective worship for you. <laughs> <laughs> We've all learned something there. So right now, back to class. <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much andrew it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you have a wonderful thank you. weekend you too take care bye-bye 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 well i'm going to close the show uh without a jingle um although i believe somebody in our amazing tech team may be able to weave the jingle back in uh to the recorded show but uh for those of you listening live i'm afraid it's just me signing off uh, I've had a great morning chatting to Andrew. My thanks to him. Uh, in a fortnight's time, I'll be back sharing an interview with uh, Samantha McMahon, who is a teacher turned tutor. And she'll be sharing her journey with me, talking about teacher burnout and the joys that running your own business could bring, a journey that I am just heading towards. So that's it from me for today. I will look forward to chatting to you again in two weeks' time. For now, take care. Have a lovely weekend.